Quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUP, LP, Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the curse of seeing sound. Grammy-winning producer, musician, artist, writer, poet, thinker, Dan Lanois is here. Murmur is a modern school film program. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Glad to have you with us here. It's a beautiful day. Even if it wasn't a beautiful day, it would be good to have you with us. I actually prefer rain, but we'll discuss that on a future episode. Uh, We have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social handles at MSFMurmur. That's Twitter and Instagram. We have uh, the Modern School Film website, and we also have a Gmail address, murmurradio at gmail.com. Uh, send us a note, send us an email, send us a question, a thought, and we will converse with you on the air. That's kind of cool. Murmurradio at gmail.com. We're also on iTunes. So you can download us, listen to us anytime, but also listen to us live every Friday, whupfm.org. It's all happening here at Murmur. One thing that's always happening is um, I'm always uh, examining for my own sanity or insanity the um, film and what makes film uh, film. I'm on this kind of crusade now that television uh, has become now the sort of gold standard of everyday entertainment I, film never was that and and film really shouldn't be that you know so be careful what you wish for but uh as we kind of try to understand what makes film unique uh one thing that leaps out at me when i work with my students uh w- one of the great artifices of film and television but let's look at film today uh one of the great artifices devices of artifice uh, is sound. Uh, Sound is probably the most artificial element of a film, unless there's some really bad acting. No, not not true. Well, uh, sound is is the most technically artificial element of a sound, of of a film. I'll give you some notes, and this will kind of corrupt you, and I warn you. Uh, One of the corruptions of being in the filmmaking process is you never watch movies the same way, but once you understand how sound is built, you'll never hear them the same way. And I'm talking about uh, what you would call source sound, sound that has an authorship from the film itself. So if we look at a few of, of those artifices, one um, one of my favorites, uh, probably the most artificial sound you hear in a movie, are footsteps. And not to get too in the, in the woods or the weeds. Um, I like in the woods, but in the weeds on this. Uh, a microphone can't really pick up acute sound in that way. So if I step my foot down, the, 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 the edges of the sound, for lack of a better description, will be lost. It'll sound like a diffuse blob. And that's kind of what sound is, in a way, a diffuse blob. And what, mo- movies technically need to corral that sound, as do you know, podcasts and radio casts. We need to corral the sound blob. Uh, so I'm always amazed at how great sound designers work uh, intellectually. And I won't 
give you the names of the technicians themselves. There are far too many. Uh, we're going to talk about one a little later with today's guest. Daniel Lanois is the guest. We're going to talk about uh, a guy named Frank Warner, who was uh, Scorsese's, the late Frank Warner, worked with Scorsese and Spielberg, amongst others, and really was a godfather of how to use sound. And we'll talk about something he did uh, within the discussion with Dan that is really amazing uh, when you think about it. Uh, but sound, when you look at the sound practitioners, you know, footsteps, other other artificial sound tropes or, or uh, displays are uh, breathing. So if an actor or character breathes, uh, that's, again, that's a very sort of diffuse sound globe that needs to be f- fenced in. And sound can do that. Sound design can do that. It's kind of a curse. You know, sound is also uh, the thing that keeps a lot of filmmakers up all night. Uh, sound, uh, post-production sound has gotten so good now that it's hard to detect the artificial. But the builders of film, the builders of sound and sight and sound, and that's why the two are often paired together, sight and sound, um, know that even though the the mechanism to create art, the, the illusion of sound is at its height, the need to erase that is is also at its height. Uh, it's one of the great paradoxes of, of going to movies. We create, we use artificial devices to create something that's artificial, and that's what audiences tend to want. the 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 idea being, the the simple well the simple uh, a simple uh, a simple example two simple examples. Robert Altman, one of the great maestros of film sound uh if you watch a movie of his you'll see you may there's a great scene in nashville where michael murphy and ned Beatty are walking and they look to be at a great distance and they're walking and talking now metaphysically or physically if i was at that distance from these guys in real life i wouldn't be able to hear what they're saying because their distance is so great but in cinema altman is bringing the artifice of the thing itself to create a reality. Because in movies, if characters are far away from the camera, we can hear them cleanly. We have to hear them cleanly or we go kind of crazy. So in that example, we have the the underscoring of how fake sound is by tricking you into thinking you hear sound a certain way. The more A more basic example is if you watch a movie or a TV show, because this happens a lot more in TV shows, I'm noticing, if you see two characters, if there's a scene when two characters are going into a club and they're talking and actors, and this is a different episode for a different day, but actors are kind of whispering because that's what actors think they should be doing. That's an illusion because if you and I were in a club or in a bar, we wouldn't be able to whisper or speak in a sort of sotto voce to be heard because we would need to project over the sound so again that's a common thing you know you watch tv and you see people at a club and they're whispering i always find that funny because it's where the technique of acting demolishes the technique of sound and vice versa there are times when actors have supported the illusion there's a great sequence in the shining when uh, jack nicholson goes into the overlook ballroom and he has a conversation with the bartender and the implication is that there's an orchestra playing in the background uh, so what Nicholson does, which is really smart, is he projects his sound, his voice, as if there's sound in the room. So he actually uh, solidifies the illusion, and that's what I think great actors can do. But it again, the sound often goes rubs against the practitioner, the, the the artist, and the and the and the technician who doesn't practice sound, because again, there's such a certain path for sound in a film. As we look at it with music and as we rock towards today's guests, I'm always interested in how producers work, music producers, people, men and women who produce um, records, albums, LPs, EPs. And one of the reasons why is I think, metaphorically speaking, producers are kind of the filmmakers of, of, that, of, that, of that style of, of creating an album that we hear creating a song because they truly see it all and hear it all and, and kind of have to know how all the parts are fitting together. And sound is, is as much a mental state as a visual state. 
And w- what this sort of boils down to is uh, any opportunity I have to speak to a, a producer, I grasp today. Daniel Lanois, I double grasp. This is a guy I've worked with before on a project, a sound and image project for his his not the current record, but a record, his record, 2014, Flesh and Machine. He and I collaborated on a image and, and sound uh, marriage, which was a lot of fun. Um, so put this all together and sound is kind of a curse. Once you reconcile these inconsistencies, though, you realize that sound is a blessing. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's the one who saw it? Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. Yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. Still loose ends, witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Terminate her. Terminate her. De Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. Jean-Luc Godard, the uh, iconic filmmaker, made a uh, film called Goodbye to Language. And when one of the great creator-inventors of cinema uh, titles a film Goodbye to Language, one needs to stop and take note. 
uh, similar to today's guest, who uh, whose new album is Goodbye to Language. Um, it's his newest child, and uh, he has many uh, birthed many amazing children. One of his children uh, won a Nobel Peace Prize this year, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but speaking of children like uh, David Lynch, when when today's guest was a child, uh, he delivered newspapers. I've actually been to his home in uh, Southern California, and it's pretty much as amazing and cool as you you would think it would be. Uh, he is a, a true artist. I've I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and there's a real difference between being an artist and a true artist, and sort of playing the role and being the thing. This man is the thing. He creates the thing. And we're better for it. He is the pride of Hull, Quebec, a producer, artist, writer, composer, singer, Dan Lanois. Mr. Lanois, bonjour, ça va? Yes, everything's going okay. Thank you so much for calling me. Uh, oh, man, thanks for being on the show with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on the new uh, album. It's amazing, man. Well, thank you, my friend. We we made an effort to go the distance with this uh, new um, new direction. You know, it's the the harmonic structure of this record is pretty far out, and and um, I'm quite proud of it. And just, I suppose it's one of the reasons why I decided to say goodbye to things uh, to the way I normally do things, <laughs> and that you know we were hoping to reach that Godard state where you know we produce something and provide something really beautiful and unusual to listeners. Well, you know, I, I made the, the connection, uh, you know, to Godard and, you know, when Daniel Lanois puts out an uh, album called Goodbye to Language, I don't care who you are, you need to stop. I mean, I happen to be a fan and a lover of your work, so I, I'm watching anyway. But it's a pr- it is a heavy title, man. Uh, w- when did the title emerge for you, Goodbye to Language? Well, we were talking about uh, um... I suppose it was towards the end, uh, and we got so many compliments on from friends who were playing the record for me prior to release that it really it was so unusual and like nothing they'd ever heard, and it, it they had no comparisons. You know, they, they, they said, I, just, I suppose it's a new form that you're you're operating by, and it's yeah. it's really a way of saying well. Goodbye to the way we've always done things. Um, obviously, it's an instrumental record, so it's without familiar language. But um, I guess what we're trying to say with this is goodbye to the one and hello to another. Um, so that's that's basically basically it. Well, it the form is yeah is new and pure. Well, is there too much talk around this kind of stuff? I mean, here you know I'm guilty of it. I, I just. I'm always led by my curiosity. You know, I don't ask a question that I genuinely don't want to know the answer to. But I suppose if you look at it from a different vantage point, do you think there is too much language around art and responsivity? I mean, your work is so sensitive and tender and beautiful and sonic, and and it and it, it predates speech. You know, sound is speech, obviously. But do we talk too much? I mean, is language becoming is is language failing us? I guess to sound like a bad English professor for a moment. Uh, um, well, this, I suppose with the coming of the electronic devices that we're all operating by these days, it's, uh, it's probably more talking now than ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right, yeah. And perhaps less reading than there used to be. <laughs> well, we, we roughly get the idea of the subject matter and we say, okay, well, let's move on and, and touch the surface of something else. Um, I've I've noticed that there's there's a shift towards um, instant gratification and everything uh, unfolding quickly, but at the same time there's, there seems to be uh, a byproduct or a, uh, a reaction to that where people are saying I'm not going to be rushing all the time mm. and I don't need little bite size on everything and I'm going to sit down and enjoy. Um, a magic carpet ride wherever, however and wherever I can get it. And we're hoping that Goodbye to Language stops people in their tracks, and it's not meant to be a background record or a pacifier or something that will um, 
act as uh, something that will soothe. It's meant to cause people to question and and welcome another feeling in their life. Um, so that's it. It's one of those that uh, hopefully the anyone who appreciates putting on a side of vinyl would, uh, would enjoy. You, I was thinking about you this morning in language, and, and one curious thing amongst many uh, fascinating things. You didn't s- learn in- you didn't speak English till you were about ten. Is that correct? We you, uh, you were born French speaking, right? As you- yeah, that's right. I started as a Frenchie, and, and then uh, my mom moved the family to uh, Hamilton, which is near Toronto, not right. far from Buffalo, New York, and that's where I first started speaking English. Do you remember those first days of speaking that language or wrapping your jaw and your tongue around English wording? Obviously, languages are, you know, as human beings, we kind of resist those acrobatics. But do you remember English being a hard language for you or an elegant transition into English? Oh, it was tough. Um, You know, as a 10-year-old, I I didn't really speak properly, uh, proper English until I was, you know, maybe 13 or 14. So coming into the teenage years and and, and uh, coming to learn a foreign language, it was a bit difficult because things like the word the seemed I didn't like it. I wanted to say duh, not <laughs> the. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, uh, but uh, you know, it um, when I look back now, I think it was probably a contributor to my imagination or the development of my imagination. You know, I just spent a lot of time on my own, and and the, the delivering of the morning paper around that same time, uh, it allowed me a, a time to myself in the morning, and it was, it was kind of a beating, the beginning of uh, wondering what would it, what it was all about, and and not being familiar with English, it, uh, it meant that I was able to use my imagination more. I remember Bob Dylan told me something similar to that, that when he came up as a kid, you know, they didn't have much around us. So radio was, was his, his window to the world. And um, he heard music, but never saw what artists looked like. Mm. And so he really had to imagine um, what people look like. And he said that what, what might've seemed to, to be, uh, he was deprived of an awful lot, but, when you're deprived, you make up for it in other ways. So, it's, you know, it, it forced him to, to build and develop his imagination. So, the lack of English, I didn't mind it so much. It caused me to question a lot of things, and I made up the answers in my own head. The um, the, the theater of the mind, obviously, as you know, is always more potent. I mean, I think in cinema has proven that. You know, when when you can hear someone screaming behind a door, and you kind of fill in the gaps. It's it's you you know it's always worse and and that's that's sort of the key. But you you were a child of radio as well, right? I mean, was that one of the gods of communication in your house? Were you were you listening to radio on a dis- basis of discourse or was it music? Like, were, were were you listening to talk shows in in your radio vocabulary as a youth? Do you remember those times listening to radio? Um, I was listening to I was listening to a lot of uh, American radio. Because we live between Buffalo and New York, if you look at the map, and so we we got a lot of uh, really great R and B radio when I was a kid, and it was all fascinating to me because, like Dylan, I, I never knew what people looked like. I just heard, you know, these, these fascinating sounds on the airwaves. Yeah, and um, uh, this is long before. Um, the beginning of videos, so um, it was kind of there was something very magic about it, you know. That mm. oh my goodness, what are they doing? Where are they from? And I wondered, <laughs> could I be involved in some of this one day? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there are people who, who thought, you know, it's like thinking War of the Worlds, you know, Orson Welles. People thought that was actually happening. There was so, you know, lack of information. It was is kind of a beautiful thing. You know, it's hard. Yes. It's hard to unscramble the eggs, but you know, part of me romanticizes about that. It's, you know, it's 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 funny not to go back, but you know, Godard, the the Godard film we were referencing, Goodbye to Language, he shot in three D, 
which surprised a lot of people. And he was asked, why did you shoot in 3D? He said, I always like it when new techniques are introduced because it doesn't have any rules yet. So I think of those early forms, you know, radio and, but we're so damn knowledgeable now. I, it's kind of a regret, you know, but I think, I think of your process, you, you have a, a beautiful balance between digital and analog. I mean, this may seem like it's been litigated, but is that important for you to stay modern in, a, in an approach, but also let's say analog in an appreciation? I mean, appreciation can be digital as well, but is that an important balance, the old and the new for you? Well, I find myself surrounded by uh, tools that I've collected over the years. You know, a lot of them beautiful musical instruments that live outside of, of trend and, and the development of technology. And I, I'm in a room right now with my two favorite Steinway pianos. <laughs> I still have my, you know, my Roland 808 beatbox, which is the Marvin Gaye sexual healing machine. It's amazing. I have my steel guitars and I have my processing gear. But we do use computer recorders. Um, So, you know, we've always embraced technology over the decades. But uh, if I could use a photographic term, I still, I like to hang on to my old lenses. Well, I love how many photographic terms you use. I've, I've heard you use depth of field, which... I think to the untrained brain sounds simply like a photographic expression, but that's an oral expression too. I mean, you know, I've spent time with you and I know how much you love visual imagery. It is amazing. You, you said you see sound. I think that's kind of fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's, that, that's an arresting idea that you see sounds. Yeah. Well, depth of feel is, is a good term to use because it's um, it's easy for anyone to understand that you know you may have um, something in the foreground of your picture, and then something a little further back in the distance in the shadows, and maybe there's a mountain range very far away, mm. and it's that uh, it's that contrast that creates creates beauty. You wouldn't know how profound or how close something is unless you saw something far away. Exactly. Um, exactly. And. Um, and I'm still mystified by by depth and sound, and I'm working on some some music right now that uh, it's so I can't even I can't even understand where it comes from. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, I think <laughs> That's I great. Even have something. Uh, I think I got something cute up right now. You might hear it a little bit over the phone. Right, right on, man. <laughs> As you can hear, the sounds are... I love it. It sounds like the earth uh, opening up and crystals coming out of the ground. And I had a conversation with my son yesterday and... He says, I don't know how to describe your music. Uh, he says, it sounds like it makes me want to take my clothes off and move to another planet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rolling, okay, well, Rolling Stone needs your son on their writing staff. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we talk about how. It's amazing. Um, I mean, you can't, get, you can't go through this world without feeling something about current events and uh, what's happening in North America right now with, with values and constantly on the shift. Um, the coming of you know, America's president and um, all this, it's really fascinating. And and so the, it's kind of like the, the shifting of the cultural monsoons. And, mm. and we can't help but be affected by that as, mm. as music creators. So this, this new body of work, I mean, Goodbye for Language has some of that in it and what I just give you a snippet of on the phone is even it. further out. So it's uh, well, as Robert Rodriguez said to me once, Lanoa, you make music. I don't need to use any sound effect. <laughs> just just uh, 
one of your tracks. I don't have to use any other sound. It's tempting. It's really tempting listening to your stuff. You know, it's funny. We're speaking with uh, Daniel Lanois. I, I think of you, if we can continue these crude film metaphors, I think of you like a Kurosawa. And I'll tell you why. One of the things I was reading that you're, you've been playing with and experimenting with is uh, speakers and trees. You know, this idea of creating a multi-dimension marriage of the organic and, and the, the, the less organic, let's say. And Kurosawa did something that I think you would really appreciate in Rashomon. He was, he was the first filmmaker to take his actors outside to do ADR. So typically, as you know, we hermetically seal our actors. So we create this perfect sound when we do the, they do their dialogue. But he said, I didn't want that. I wanted the movie takes place in a field. In in a, in a garden in the woods, I want them to speak and be recorded in a woods. So I, it's funny. I think of his care sound and your care sound. I mean, is that too is that uh, overly poetic? Uh, uh, an idea of the frontier of marrying sound to the real world. Um, are those experiments? Do they turn you on? Do they excite you uh, on, on a level? Well. I certainly like to push buttons, uh, you know, uh, the, what good by the language has in it, it, uh, it pushes the symphonic button, um, um, what we love about classical music, uh, I believe is in this record somewhere, even though the sound are not uh, created by conventional instruments, I think the, the spirit of the record is such that it has a timelessness in it, and it does, it does visit some of those... Um, some Eastern European tonalities that I love and old classical records from the 40s and 50s. Where the, the chords come, you don't know where they came from, but they really create a feeling inside. Um, but uh, it's kind of sweet that a filmmaker would say, listen, if I'm in the field, I don't want my actor to overdub in a booth somewhere. Exactly. I want I want the sound recorded in the very field that we shot in. So... More power to the filmmaker who can pull that off because they're going to bring a viewer a lot closer to the sensation uh, that was felt at the time. Well, well, as you know, you know, film has conditioned us to hear things in a fantasy space. I mean, if you look at Robert Altman films, we in those movies we can hear people whispering a mile away, and obviously in life we can't do that. So I always tell my film students, embrace this idea that sound is the most artificial part of filmmaking, and they end up loving that. Is that you know? Is that part of your attraction? This kind of this verb fabrication to fabricate something. Is that a compliment? If I called you a, fa- a great fabricator, amongst other things, does that sound? Comp- yeah, comp- yeah. I mean, amongst other things, is that complimentary or is that kind of uh, a, a snide idea? Now, the fabricator sounds good. I, I always considered myself a record maker and not a record producer mm. because mm. if I ever so mysterious and you know when when we hit on something that conjures up an image then we thank our lucky stars and, and move on and it's it's part of the building block of um coming up with something original you know mm. which is some people say it's, everything's been done it's hard to do original things but i feel very differently i think we have a responsibility to step into the future and, and um i think goodbye language touches on that, you know, it's it's so unusual that um, we, we could wear that feather in the cap, you know, I can say, well, nothing's ever been done quite like this, and I'm using that as a, a stepping stone to more to come. Um, I don't want to do things, I don't want to do things I've done before or anyone else has done, so there it is, man, I'm... I've got a knife of the future. If I can pull it off, then more power to me. <laughs> you, you, re- you read my mind a little bit. Another uh, sonic uh, scientist that I was thinking about today is a guy named Frank Warner. Frank used to do the sound, uh, the late Frank Warner used to do the sound design for Scorsese. He did it for Scorsese, Raging Bull. He did uh, Spielberg, Close Encounters. And he did something really interesting that I'd love to get your response on. He, When he would create a sound, like if, if you look at Raging Bull, the fight scenes, the punches are, are elephant noises and bullets. They're these kind of hybrid petri dished concoctions and they're beautiful and what he would do is he would destroy the sound files after he was done 
And I asked a colleague of his, why would he do that? Well, he said, she said two reasons. The minor reason is he didn't want anyone to use them. But the major reason is he didn't want to use them again. He was so terrified of repeating himself, not terrified in a way of temptation, but that was a mandate. Never repeat thyself. Is that kind of a little bit of a tattoo for you as you go? Because you're so ubiquitous, man. You've done so many great things with so many great people. Does Is that part of the mantra of it all? Like, thou shalt not repeat? Or is that kind of a, do we have a, do we have a kind of natural bleeding, you know, process? Well, I, I try and afford myself the luxury of, of moving on. Mm. And, uh, and we all have our heroes and we all have loved films and records from the past. And, but, um, when I go to, into my studio and I'm not looking to replicate anything that I've been inspired by, I want to want my inspirations to act as fuel for my imagination and for me to create something that's never been done before. So I can, at least be part of that club that you know uh, might be viewed as a club of trailblazers. Really, people who do people who have done things that have made a difference and opened the doors to other folks who you know might be stuck. Otherwise, we have a responsibility to innovate and create. And, uh, it's it's clear what's happened with technology, and we embrace that, but. Um, in terms of artistic expression, um, I've I, I taken on as a challenge. I've always wanted to do things different, so nothing much has changed that way. Uh, talking to uh, Daniel Enwad, a couple other thoughts for you, Dan. Thinking about you know time, I always talk to my film students about time and how time is a character in a film and location. You know, and if you look very look into your work, the way you sculpt time and location is is precise and beautiful. I was thinking about something you you, you talked about with uh, Oh Mercy, working with Bob, working with Dylan, and how that was recorded at night because night was the feel, you know. Um, and and also talking about some of the location stuff you've done with you too, recording in castles. Where does that come in? You know, when does that come in? Is that an, a luxury and a necessity to sculpt a record, an album recording, or your recording based on time and space? Is that a must-have, or is that kind of, how can we maximize what we have in front of us? Well, it's, I see it as part of revolution, um, part of evolution and revolution, to want to create an environment whereby people will think differently and have different expectations. Um, it's nice if you can have, uh, if you can record in a castle and no one has done it before, how amazing is that? Mm. Um, because then we look for inspiration. Um, I mean, I can make a record anywhere. Um, I've done it in closets and castles and hallways and busy studios, isolated studios. I think it's, it largely depends on what's going on in somebody's mind at the time. But one thing for sure is I've always um, devoted myself to a given project at a given time. And if that means um, building a studio in an unusual location, um, to reassure everybody involved that they are special and we are going to do something special, and if we're going to create something, we're going to create an arena that belongs to us that's special. And uh, I'm okay with that if that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like your, your approach to the artist is is truly personal, and that may sound like an overused idea, but I love reading about how you worked with Dylan early on, and D- you and Dylan in a room in a piano talking about records he was listening to, and you know, looking at the cultural anthropology. I always tell my students that every film is a documentary. One thing I love about your records, your albums, is no matter who you're working with or if you're on your own or working with Rocco, they're documentaries. It's a documentary of time. And I, I don't think an artist can ask for more. I mean, do you, do you look, when you pick a, something out of your library, do you think back on that time and space, like when you were in New Orleans or, you know, the, the, with Peter Gabriel nailing him into his writer's room, <laughs> which I think is fantastic. <laughs> what, do you think of that? Does that come back or is that kind of like just 
prologue to who you are now. And did well, you and did you really nail him into his writer's room? That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it was uh, Peter Gabriel's studio was in the country in the west a lot of, uh, of England, pardon me. And um, it was an old cattle barn, and the control room was in the small part of the barn, and then the big part of the barn was his, he had his PA in there where he turned up the volume and, and bashed through some some grooves and some, some lyric ideas. And um, and I I had made an agreement with Peter that we would make a masterpiece. And the making a masterpiece did not, involved him being on the telephone. <laughs> and so <laughs> the only telephone we had was uh, was uh, one of those wall phones at the time. And I, I ripped it off the wall and I threw it in the ravine and I nailed him shut in, <laughs> in the cattle barn and said, you're not coming out until the lyrics are done. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, it was a little easier to pull something like that off in those days yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he, otherwise he might have been armed with a cell phone in his pocket, but the cell phone didn't exist yet. Well, I've heard of people being shut out of editing rooms, but never being locked into spaces. So I absolutely love, I, I love yeah. that. You use the M word, man. This is a tricky word. I think we throw it around too much, but when you use it, I want to know how you define it. What is a masterpiece? Um. Oh man, it's hard to know what you've got until uh, a bit of time goes by, and uh, I can listen to records I've worked on back in the day now, and and I realize that um, they are naive and 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 beautiful because of the amount of commitment in them. They're not perfect, but they are snapshots of those people at that time. Um, I think that's what's wonderful about art that. Uh, People give it everything they got, even though they might not have everything to work with. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I think the great masters have embraced limitations, you know, uh, and 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 made you forget about them. One 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 macro and then one micro before we let you go. We're talking to uh, Dan Daniel Lanois. The, the 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 macro is. I always think about what makes cinema. What are, what are things cinema movies still do really well? And one of the things I've I'm convinced of is music. Now, when I say music, I mean the way we experience in a movie sound and music. We don't experience it on TV. What, what, you've done amazing. You've had amazing songs in television, and you know, the work you did on Friday Night Lights is amazing. But what is it about sound and music on on a smaller screen in a, in that context that we we haven't quite celebrated enough? You know, we don't talk about scoring for television. We don't talk about we don't watch a TV show and leave thinking what a great score. Most people don't. Why why has why have movies retained more more of that ownership over utilization of music and sound? What, what do you think? Well, the the arena that they get played in is is a big part of it. You know, obviously, if you're going to sit down in a beautiful theater with a large sound system, you're going to uh, you're going to feel sound pressure. You know, the the uh, the low frequencies of the bass will cause the organs to react a little bit, <laughs> and yeah. so it goes beyond hearing something. It's it's a physiological sensation, um, and it's it's pretty curious, really, because even in the absence of a big system, we um, we we devoted members of the sound club. We have to create the. Uh, the impression of sound pressure, even at low volume. So it's there's a little bit of uh, we all need to be magicians of sorts, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's no there's no substitute for being in a big room with a lot of other folks, and because uh, when we go to the theater, we go to the cinema, we don't just experience the film itself. We experience the night, mm -hmm. and we do that in the presence of 500 or a thousand other people, depending on the size of the place. And there's something nice about that. There's something nice about congregation, even if we're not talking during that time. We feel the presence of other people, and we feel like we're part of something. We feel that vibration. You know, as you say, 
David Lynch was once asked, "What uh, what's your favorite sound effect? He said, pressure. And if you listen to his films, like Eraserhead most noticeably, there's there's literally a sound of pressure. Uh, and I, I mean, you, your ears are so, you have such sensitive instruments. I love how you make that comparison. I, I, I don't want to leave the chat with you, and I really want to thank you for being with us today, uh, Dan. Without talking a little bit about the year that was, because a lot of mountains moved, and sometimes the ends are the beginnings. But I want to get your a couple of thoughts on uh, one. If we look at the the sun shining, uh, you're one of your um, partners in crime, Mr. Dylan, won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, what did you think when, when you heard the news? I, I was happy for him, man, and I was happy for the community to, to consider him. Um, I heard some of the criticisms. Uh, how could you provide a musician with such an award? Well, I think Yates played and sang a little bit. I think James <laughs> Joyce did as well. Yeah. And uh, A few songs in Shakespeare, too, I believe. I may have missed that, but I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit um, simplistic to think that somebody is just going to be involved with an absolute pure form and wouldn't be expanding in any way. The horizon is, is very broad. So Bob's put out books, no problem. He happens to be well-known as a songwriter and musician, but that doesn't mean to say he's not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. But, uh, anyhow, man, it's... I think he's, he's one of the great American treasures, and I'm really happy that uh, in times of of a lot of smut on TV and radio, and you know the our our, uh, our public address systems have been abused greatly, and not by Mr. Dillon. Amen. Another uh, partner in crime has uh, something coming up on the horizon, a guy named Eno. Uh, you may have heard of him, uh, Brian Eno, has something coming yeah. out called Reflection. Have you heard uh, the, the new one, his, his his forthcoming release? Have you heard any of it? Oh, is this the one uh, that, uh, is it called The Ship? or is it another? The Ship is a track on it that he released this year. But I think the whole work is called Reflection. I've heard the oh. ship. Have you heard the one the one longer track? It's like a twenty minute track. Um, I listened to I listened to that record with a friend of mine here in Toronto, and I, I loved it. I thought yeah. Brian was remaining true to his inspirations and sticking to his story. So there you go, Matt. Do, 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 uh, beautiful work. I mean. Um, uh, goodbye to language is a very, very different thing, and yeah. it's kind of interesting to see how we have branched out. And, well, th that's why I mentioned uh, him in the spirit of when you guys both have stuff at the same time. I mean, as you know, we're, we're looking at this idea of time. I love the fact that the zeitgeist has pushed you both towards the human race again. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. I mean, you haven't gone anywhere, but I love the fact that you both have some, some, some child uh, being delivered. You, the, the one thing, though, is we look at 2016 ending and onto bigger and better for everyone. You know, we did have some big leap passings, Bowie and Leonard, fellow Canadian, uh, fellow habitant, uh, Leonard Cohen. Um, do you reflect on that? I mean, you're part of this incredible spectrum of the history of rock. I hate to say, sound like a VH1 special, but you are part of this spectrum. You're part of this iconography. When these giants leave us, do you think about that and you think about your own work and what kind of legacy you want to leave? Or, or, am I yes. just, or am I just bumming you out? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's, it's nice to talk about it. I mean, um, I knew Leonard and Bowie a little bit and you know, Prince a little bit. And, and I think what we're what is obvious to me is once the dust settles and uh, you know um, we're no no longer have an image to go by and we're left with the sound. Um, I think the it's caused me to look at my work a little differently. You know, I uh, I want to make sure that my music lives on. It's not something that served um, a community for a certain time. You know. This, works live on and I think we've done a good job as artists. Uh, I, I uh, as I said before I entered you I've I've done a handful of talks and uh, over the years and uh, I, to sound a little in your face about it I, I there is a huge difference between meet, meeting someone who works in our work and who is an artist and you are an artist I mean your, your dad was a maker a carpenter 
uh, in addition to a violinist and other things, you know, but you you prove that art is beyond the the thing itself. You know, you, you could be working on a ship somewhere and it would be art because meeting you and experiencing how you think and how you work, it's truly a gift. So as long as I'm talking and kicking, you've affected me and you've affected millions, man. So th- that thing will never change. I want to thank you and I love the new record and I can't wait to hear what you do next. Yeah. Uh, my brother, very kind words and of encouragement and, when I'm done uh, talking to you, I'm going to be going to my stove over there and carry on with that little snippet I, I let you hear there some minutes back. We'll keep, we won't keep you from the, libra- the laboratory any, any more, Professor Lanois. Dan, thanks for being with us. We'll, we'll talk to you down the road. Yeah, all right. That was very sweet of you to call, okay? Cheers, man. Be well. Thank you. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You said, one love, one life. When it's one need in the night.
One thing that's really interesting about the uh, Godard film um, Goodbye to Language, I don't know if any of you caught it, it was um, shot in 3D, so you would have to have kind of experienced it three-dimensionally in a cinema space. He, uh, there's actually, we're talking about Dylan, talking about, with Dan, we were talking about uh, Bob Dylan won uh, Nobel this year, and since it's come out now, that he's not going to be able to go to Stockholm to claim the award, but apparently, according to the terms of the Nobel Peace Prize, you have to make a lecture within six months of receiving the award. So sometime to continue to, continue to qualify for the award, Dylan We'll have to be in Stockholm between, I guess, December 2016 and so May, June, May, June um, 2017. So look out for that. That said, in the Godard film, Goodbye to Language, Adieu to Language, Adieu au lang- Language, I don't know how to say language in French, Langage, um, a character actually makes a joke about the fact that there's there's a Nobel Peace Prize for literature, but not one for painting or music, which is kind of amazing given the chain of events now, or the reality now that Dylan won a Nobel in literature. So the truth is, or the question is, the curious question is, will there be a Nobel Peace Prize for music? For music? I, I must say, as I sit here and ask the question, it worries me. It worries me because I think there is a danger of a a really crude debate on who deserves it and who doesn't. So I think hanging the word literature, continuing to hang the word literature on on this this award or this this genre of of the Nobel award, I actually would love to see persevere persevere um because i think to open it up to music um then a nobel peace prize for music then you then you're opening up uh, the canon in a way that i don't know is beneficial to the idea of awarding music that said i do think the dylan announcement the Dylan idea will open up the sinus cavity of more writers. And we can have that debate because then we can debate their writing. So, you know, you, we can debate if, if Bruce Springsteen has written a song that you like. We could debate it on a point of literature. Or if Joni Mitchell write, has written a song that you like, we can debate it on a point of lit- literature. And that's an interesting debate, I think. But to say music, then you're really you're really using music as sort of a cudgel or at least you're 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 using it on one score to point out that music and lyrics like what is music what is a work of music that song one which i think is a gorgeous song what comp- what what makes up a song a piece of music the lyrics the engineering the producing and i, I thought it was interesting speaking of producing i thought it was interesting and i spoke to dan about this also sort of off the record uh, and I won't, you know, relay the essence of that, which was he was really proud of Bob and proud that he had kind of played a part in that. And I don't know what Dylan would think of that idea that that others had contributed to lyrics. And that that's another kind of hornet's nest. But if we look at the Nobel Prize for Literature, certainly 100% of the words written for any Nobel Prize winning effort were not the sole authorship of that author. As no film is the sole authorship of anyone. And film dramatically <laughs> uh, manifests this idea because if there was a Nobel Peace Prize for film, who would you give it to? I guess you, you know, if you gave it to Spielberg. And then if you were asked, well, why would we give it to Spielberg? Well, Spielberg's films from E.T. to The Terminal have expressed a kind of human ethos. Then the other questions of authorship come in. What about the editor? What about the screenwriter? Spielberg's not a writer. Uh, He's written certain some of his films, but not all of his films. You know, then you really get into a, a minefield. 
but I think keeping music in a form of literature, but then film literature, you know, Wither, Ingmar Bergman, uh, you know, Bergman as Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, so we're still opening up this kind of interesting idea, but I think keeping it as in a, within the format of literature keeps it a more civilized debate. And and not that c- debate needs to be civilized, but I miss a good old-fashioned civilized debate, don't you? Uh, we're uh, out of time. We want to thank Dan Lanois for being with us here on Murmur. www.murmurradio.com Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at MSF Murmur. Listen to us on iTunes and listen to us live on whup.fm.org every week, every Friday. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Same time on Murmur. Thanks.